Our, I, I know I just said this, but our theme music is so appropriate I will for this series. I can say that it was stuck in my head while I was watching the series. It, um, <laughs> yeah, well, especially because I was watching it because we're recording about it. Um, but yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's you, well. I mean, you don't need a good reason to watch. No, Abby. Like you can. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I didn't watch it until like right now. Um, I know it's. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of like it's kind of a mom show. Oh, like, you. Kn- I'll be honest. <laughs> you know what it was? I didn't have access to it until. Oh, okay. I got my new TV set up. Yeah, that's what it was. I always wanted. I was like, how did I miss this one? Because I it's didn't. On, isn't it on? Isn't it all on Netflix now? Yeah, it's all on Netflix now. And then I, I wound up getting it on Amazon Prime. Um, ah, okay. But but I didn't know that I could do that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't have watch the, it. Like, I have, is it on Amazon Prime as well? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I have the like the PBS Masterpiece channel for Amazon Prime. Okay. So that's how I watch all of that stuff. But I didn't realize that it was just on regular Prime too. Yeah. But it's also on Netflix. So Yay. like honestly, you have so many different ways to watch this show, listeners. And you gotta so if you watch it. If you haven't yet, if you haven't watched Downton Abbey yet and you are listening to this episode of that uh welcome uh hello hello (laughs) that's uh, a bold choice that you've made it is um but we're glad you're here and And we're gonna have some fun talking about Downton Abbey and indeed the ladies of Downton always make um bold choices so you're among they do yes you're among fellows and friends (laughs) certainly Downton Abbey Donna Meagle's favorite book. Yes. Uh, <sighs> I know. Oh, I I recently used uh, Donna Meagle's Twitter snafu when she accidentally tweeted from the Parks Department Twitter uh-huh. account. I used that as an example in a paper for grad <laughs> school, and I got a hundred percent on the paper. So yeah, you did. Donna Meagle strikes again. She got you through. That's awesome. She got me through. Thank you, Donna Meagle. <laughs> Truly an inspiration. Um, <laughs> Did you know she's related to Genuine? Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's Genuine. You don't know Genuine? <laughs> He's Genuine. <laughs> Saying it louder doesn't help. <laughs> anyway. Um <laughs> We could make parks and reference parks and references. Park and, parks oh, and references. Parks and recs <laughs> parks and rec references all day. And we have. Before. We have. But mm-hmm. let's <laughs> let's talk about Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. I'm so excited for this one. Me too. I I finally got you to watch it. I know. I remember I texted you I watched Downton Abbey during my spring break from school this year. And your exact text back was, we can finally talk about it. (laughs) Yay. I'm a single minded, you know, everything is about what we can talk about on the podcast. Well, because this show is something, it's right up our alley. I know. Like it's, yeah, it has everything. It really does. Period details in the costuming. Mm -hmm. It has drama. Mm -hmm. It has primogeniture. It has. It has like two. Different it has Michelle Dockery. Oh my! And I'm, I'm in love with her. Oh my goodness, she's so good in this show. She's so great. Every single. I think you said this last time. Every single woman on this TV show, you could one could easily fall in love with. Um, Absolutely, and like, yeah. It's so evident that all of these actors are like classically trained just so talented like everyone is just so incredibly talented i blown away (sighs) 
down to nothing. <laughs> also, like, there's drama and then there's, like, ridiculous drama. So there's, oh, yeah. like, there's, like, there's drama. Like, there's, like, melodrama. Right. Like, like There's just, definitely, you know, yeah, touches of melodrama in there. Just a second ago, I was sobbing because I was, I'm still, like, just at the end of season five, I was sobbing and then I was cracking up at another like little piece of like, oh, it's so dramatic with like the swelling of the music and like the whatever. <laughs> so it really puts you through a roller coaster. It really does. Yeah. A roller coaster of emotions, yeah. one could say. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, let's do, should we do like a, a quick little synopsis? Yeah, uh, the show and the movie because we can talk about the movie a little bit too. Yeah, um, yeah. So, if you don't know, <laughs> if you, if like Rhonda said, if you somehow have walked into this episode and <laughs> don't have a context for Downton, <laughs> so it's a British historical drama television series set in early twentieth century. It was created and co-written by Julian Fellows. And it first aired on ITV in the United Kingdom on September 26th, all the way back in um, 2010. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, in... Right? It's 2010. That's oh, right. that's forever. Um, and then, of course, it was on PBS in the United States. Across the pond. As a part of the masterpiece classic anthology, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to limit my bad British accent. Please don't. <laughs> but no. I, do, <laughs> like, no promises. <laughs> and so it came to um, the United States on January 9th of 2011. So pretty a wonderful close day. after. It was a delightful. A wonderful day. day. <laughs> and so, just so you have a backdrop, the series is set in fictional Yorkshire count country estate of Downton Abbey between 1912 and 1926 and it depicts the lives of the aristocratic oh goodness it depicts the lives of the aristocratic Crawley family and their domestic servants in the post-Edwardian era and just the great events that were going along historically at the time it opens with the Titanic um, and right. goes from yeah. there yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah, so it starts with the sinking of the Titanic and um Mary's uh Lady Mary's fiance was on the Titanic and died in the sinking. Yeah. And so that kind of sets off like the main dramatic arc of that first season because now like there there's a new heir for Downton Abbey. Yeah. And he is introduced into their lives. So, and you know, yeah, male primogeniture just super fun. We, we love to see it. <laughs> so fun for everyone. Um, yes, so. it's very much. It's very much uh, Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. Yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. except like Matthew is nothing like Mr. Collins. No, oh <laughs> okay. Matthew, and then. <laughs> You also get a really good introduction to who Mary is and who Mary will be and mm. kind of just how she's unwilling to be trapped in what life has kind of set out for her, which I think right. is my favorite thing about her. But I digress. Um, right. So. <laughs> yeah. So the show, I think, ran through like 2015 or 2016. Okay. Um, and then there was a Christmas special. Yes. I think in 2016 and then 2019, the movie came out. Of course. Of um, course. Yes. Yeah. And was written by, as you said, was written by Julian Fellows um, and directed by Michael Engler. Um, and so it continued the storyline from the series. It had the same original cast, um, but it was set a year after the ending of the series. So it's set in 1927 and the whole plot of the movie is that the king and queen are coming to visit. Wow. <laughs> <Downton Abbey. laughs> yeah. so you haven't gotten to the movie yet, have you? I'm and like, it's, spoil everything. It doesn't matter. But I'm at the end of season five. So I'm just, mm. yeah. But honestly, okay. yes. Okay. 
And then there's this there's a follow up to the movie coming out. Um, it was originally going to come out around Christmas time this year. Yeah. But it got it got moved to March of next year. Okay. Because because COVID. Um, yep. 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 And it's called Downton Abbey: A New Era. Okay. And it's a direct sequel to the 2019 film, but it's being directed by Simon Curtis. Okay. I don't know who that dude is. I don't know who Michael Engler is. That's fine. It's fine. White dudes directing Downton Abbey movies. Yep. That's okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that's our bird's eye view of Downton Abbey as a series Um, and film as a franchise. Downton Abbey is a franchise. It is. It is. And Um, like. That plot was just so we could begin this conversation. The mm-hmm. plot goes everywhere. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my good gravy. I never, we don't really see a lot of like Downton Abbey cosplayers. Right. <laughs> Although that would be so fun. I uh, would be so into it. Oh my goodness. I want to cosplay Sybil's jumpsuit. Yes. With the like, the like puffy pants of the jumpsuit. Uh, that's great. I want to do a Mr. Bates Sweeney Todd crossover, the demon barber of Downton. (laughs) I love that. Because the end of the show just turns into the freaking Sopranos. I swear. Like, it's just (laughs) like, what is happening? Yeah. Anyway. Next next Comic-Con or next Geek Girl. That would be great. Geek Girl would be a great environment for for Downton Abbey cosplay. The demon barber of Downton. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> the demon valet. Demon valet of Downton. The, is de- more appropriate. Oh, yes. the demon valet of Downton. <laughs> yes. Can you please write that fanfic and put it on AO3 for I us? I will. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's do. A- yes. <laughs> the show <laughs> has my whole heart. They're my favorite couple in the whole show. I love them so much. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, Anna. Anna. Who doesn't love Anna? Ugh. What? Both our friend Anna and the character Anna. (laughs) I was shouting at the screen at various points through her whole journey. Mm. And it's not even over yet. Like, I'm just. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Well, since you were very much in the midst of your first experience with Downton Abbey, why don't you tell me about that? Oh, my good gravy. So I started the series in spring break of my first full year as a lead teacher, which was also in a pandemic. And Mm. I just so Mm -hmm. desperately needed something, something like dramatic to get me through and to kind of calm me a little bit because it had been a hard year. So I started, I said, okay, I'll start Downton. And I got immediately sucked in. In that week, I watched three seasons or series, and I, I'm obsessed. I am obsessed, like specifically with Lady Mary and Anna. They're my two favorite. Um, sure. Like I think with Anna, I so identify with her as like she's just a hardworking human, and then she gets put in these positions and she like it's just such a wild ride and then I love um watching Lady Mary as she says absolutely not to going with social convention but she uses Mm -hmm. the social convention to get her way like I just think she's masterful and fascinating Mm -hmm. and then then you also get characters like Daisy and Miss Patmore who are just so like (laughs) so comforting and so kind of uh funny and also really inspiring and also women who are un- unwilling to kind of accept things as they are and that's what really mm-hmm. inspires me about this show and that's what I'm really like super into last night I went I took myself out to dinner and I was watching it like as I was eating I'm just I'm, <laughs> I'm fully obsessed yeah um, I think your trajectory has been a longer one. When did you get it, involved it in Downton? <laughs> well, I first, I mean, I watched the first season as it was airing on PBS oh, in wow. 2011. Cool. And I was in my, um, I like had just graduated from college and I was in my first like 
real quote unquote job and yeah. I was working for a history museum wow. and, and um it, so it was like a house museum and the house was built in 1908 and so <gasps> I w- was very much like immersed in kind of this Edwardian yeah um, even though you, you know like very very different world from <laughs> the world of Downton Abbey um, <laughs> sure. but still it was that kind of um you know, I was kind of like just starting to, um, well, I'd been interested in history and in historical fashion and social history for, for a while, but I was just starting to like really get, you know, super into it. Um, yeah. So I absolutely just devoured that first season or series, excuse me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the first series, um, and I remember watching the finale of the first series um, and my brother, I think, was like happened to be in the room for like the last half of it. And the way that it ends where um, so like if you remember in the in the in the finale of series one, um, like they've heard that like the Archduke was just assassinated yes. and then they're all like at a picnic. They're always at a picnic. They're always. And, yeah. <laughs> And, um, and, uh, Lord Grantham gets the, uh, the, the letter or the telegram, um, saying that like basically that world war one has started and he like, he like reads it and he turns around and like looks at all his guests and he's like, we are at war. (laughs) (laughs) And then it like, that's the end of the episode. And at the time I did not realize that it was going to be an ongoing series yeah I thought that that was just the end of you know of that whole story and my brother's in the room with me and he's like that's it that's the end I'm like yeah that's it and he's and he's like wow that's quite an ending (laughs) like yeah it is but then of course it you know it went on um yeah (laughs) and uh yeah I I pretty much kept up with the first three uh yeah the first three series and then of course at the end of series three Matthew dies and I was like can't handle this anymore I know. so I waited quite a while to watch um the the last two series but I did eventually um and then watched the movie yeah when it came out and I had a fun experience watching the movie um, because uh, there's a local uh, tea room that hosted like a watch party of the movie when it first came out. And so like they provided uh, like tea and scones and little like snacks for everyone. And um, and everyone was supposed to dress 1920s. Sure. So, uh, but let me tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, I wasn't planning to like get super into detail on this. I can recommend some YouTube videos. But what we think of as the 1920s fashion um, is not at all accurate. Right. Um, <laughs> the like sequined super short dresses yeah um that's not that's not the 1920s like no they still (laughs) like even like you know like the quote-unquote short you know shortest dresses that people wore were still like below the knee yeah they were still long by our standards but it was daring for back then because women had never shown like their ankles before so yeah. um so i like did my research and got like as close to an accurate um you know silhouette and cut and length dress as i could on my budget yeah. so you know it was a drop waist it was kind of loose fitting it hit like mid calf. It uh-huh. was very unflattering, um, yeah. but it was accurate. <laughs> yeah, I suffered for accuracy. I Absolutely. suffered wearing a really unflattering dress that I will never wear again. But <laughs> I looked like as close to an accurate 1920s woman as I could. <laughs> How fun! I love that. Yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, 
I just had to rant about that for a second. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it's a cute dress, like on the hanger. It's just not cute on. It looks like a potato sack. So, yep. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what dresses looked like in the twenties. Yeah. If you if you weren't like extremely risque, right? <laughs> and you know, yeah. like flappers were like a very very small percentage of the population. It's not uh, like everyone was dressing like that. No, but. and it was a really big. I like, digress. A, it was an elitist thing too. Like you, not everyone. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get into it. But yes. Yeah. Yeah, like the bright young things. Yeah. Yeah, so it was really, um, Rhonda, as you were saying, we're kind of fed this imagery now that everyone was a flapper in the 1920s Uh and that it was, it was for rich and poor alike. And that's simply not true. So the flappers were elitist youth of, um, these large aristocratic families, or they were artists or they were socialites, but they weren't everyone. Like you couldn't just walk into one of these like supper clubs and engage with this elite group of people. It was actually, um, one group of like social people, kind of like the real housewives of New York and that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, we're all flappers. It was like, oh, here's this group of elite rich kids, and they called themselves the bright young people or the bright young things. And they were very much a social group, not a, not like a, a movement. And it, it like, it certainly did trickle down. The style did trickle mm-hmm. down um, and people might have replicated it. But in terms of, like, the groups who were really going out engaging in in this were very much their own social circle in London. Right. It wasn't just an aesthetic. It wasn't just, like, cottage core or dark academia. Like, this is, like... Yeah. An elite group. Yeah. So we see this really well played. I had gasped um, when Lily James walked onto the screen. I was like, who is in this? I love her. I think that was one of her first big roles, too. Yeah, she yeah, she was great in it. And she plays Lady Rose um, and she's our vantage point into the bright young people or the bright. She's kind of the replacement for Sybil. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. And it's a replacement for Sybil and also like the fun that we got from Mary before she had to start like having responsibilities and stuff. Uh Kind of the fun rebellion you saw. So um, as as soon as we meet Lady Rose, we see her engaging in these social events in London. She is very much known in these London jazz clubs. And she's like, you see her engaging with royalty who are also maybe trickling into something similar to the Bright Young Things, even though they're never mentioned by name in the series. Um mm-hmm. And this is very much a secret at first. And then eventually we get Lady Rose, like, inviting jazz musicians to play at Downton. And at one point, Mary says, your niece is a flapper. Get used to it. Like, it <laughs> it becomes less and less of a secret. But at first, it's pretty secretive. And so I wanted to take a look at um, the bright young people or the bright young things and talk about what this would have looked like in real life if you were Lady Rose. So there's this great NPR article called um, Let Frivolity Reign, London's Roaring 1920s by DJ Taylor. And the article starts out with kind of a rationale for why these young rich kids kind of threw caution to the wind and started Mm. spending like too much money and being really... By all accounts, being really spoiled um, and kind of having that deeply, like, frivolity to the point of kind of being harmful, you know, with their money and with their estates that they're supposed to someday take charge of. And the article noted that they, this entire class of people or group of people would have been too young to fight in World War One. But they would have seen loved ones fight and die and be involved. And so psychologically, it would make a lot of sense that these would be the people who start 
kind of that disenfranchisement with how it should like the ways of the time and move into this frivol- frivolous to the point of mockery type of lifestyle. It makes sense that they would go against the grain um, in a few different ways through the so they were very much like making statements through the parties that they were throwing. So there's a few different types of parties um, that these individuals partook in pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. The very first one, the very, very first one was a um, scavenger hunt um, where, oh. and yeah. That's and so this wholesome, right. And it, it kind of reminded me of like what sorority and fraternity groups do for hazing a little bit. Or like, um, doesn't it sound like, uh, what's the secret society that Rory goes to? Absolutely. Um, girl. yeah, <laughs> I even have in here, you jump, I jump, Jack. Exactly. Exactly. It's that same kind of spoiled brat kind of tendency, you know, um, and again, it was because of this deep sadness from a generation who was pretty much born and raised in a time of horrible turmoil. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that they would be a little raucous. But um, it all started with a scavenger hunt. To quote uh, Taylor, as they were all terribly well connected and knew everybody in upper British society, Items would be things like the prime minister's pipe or a pair of corsets owned by a celebrated actress. Hmm. So this wasn't this wasn't your mama's scavenger hunt. It was like <laughs> it had some real excitement and grandeur to it and danger. Certainly that was at the forefront of all of these events. There was a, like a danger element. They wanted to. I honestly, they wanted, I honestly think they wanted to feel something, right? They Mm -hmm. had been so out of the, out of touch for so long and kind of in this deep sadness that they wanted to feel some sort of the wind against their hair, you (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So other types of events, there would be midnight car chases. (laughs) There would be Mm -hmm. um, bath and bottle parties. Just like go to Bath and Body Works and buy yes cucumber melon (laughs) hand sanitizer, and it had to be cucumber melon. Um, (laughs) So if you were lucky enough to be invited to one of these very elite parties, you would be given a small card of an invitation that would just say the location of the um, of the event, and then a simple little bit of instruction so there's a sample one in um, the bright young people by dj taylor Uh, taylor includes a sample like a historical sample of what the invite would say so it said saint george's swimming baths in buckingham palace road at 11 o'clock p.m on friday the 13th of july friday the 13th right And then it just says, please wear a bathing suit and have a bath towel and a bottle. Note, it's not called, like, it's not bring alcohol. They just say bring a bottle. They're very Mm, into, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, And each guest was required to show an invitation. And in further, um, further information from this same article, there's a firsthand account there's a firsthand account of the party, which noted that there there were pretty much the equivalent of like pool floaties floating oh. in these baths. Like there was a there were gigantic animal uh, pool floaties and in very like public baths. So it was it was almost as though they meant to be found out because then they would walk home at the end of the night as um, polite society were going to work. They would walk home in their bathing clothes or they would. Mm. So they wanted, they wanted, they wanted to make the news. They wanted to be found out. And then they were the darlings of the news of the time. They, the the newspapers loved them until they didn't love them. So Similarly to this type of a party, there was the mock wedding. So two individuals who were not in love and not even a little bit (laughs) uh, betrothed to each other would have a fake wedding to kind of one step further than poke fun. What if they were like secretly in love with each other and this is the only way that they could express it? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I would bet you that that probably happened. Um, uh, <laughs> and then there were also the the instances of this where it was very much to poke fun of the harm that the institution of marriage did to people at this time. Okay. Okay. Kind of like how some marriages could trap people, that kind of uh-huh. thing. So this was very much a response to that. There were circus parties where they had real animals and horses and all dressed, all those invited dressed as circus performers. Again, then they would come home as polite society went to work. So it was, again, very much we want to be found out. There was a fake art exhibit called Bruno by someone who was called Bruno Hat. (laughs) But Bruno Hat was a faked artist, and the artwork was painted in like, in like five or ten minutes, and very much <laughs> like not po- as by part of someone who was um, a part of this social group again to say, "You are all pompous and ridiculous." Ah, okay. I made this, and five to ten minutes is probably a stretch, but it was very much like this is an art. This is just something I made, and I'm, you're all passing me off as a great artist because I told you to think that way, uh-huh. but I am not. Um, oh, very, very Banksy esque. Yes, absolutely. I very, love this. I did too. Very, very anti establishment. Um, uh huh. And then there was the Mozart party where guests wore 18th century white wigs. Oh, kind of like how people have 1920s parties now. Yeah. And do ridiculously inaccurate versions of what they think the 1920s is. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, you'll note with all of these, the Mozart party, the fake wedding, the circus, the bath party... Those were all things that, like, if you were dressed for that type of event, you would be gawked at. You would be stared Mm -hmm. at. And that was very much the point. And then eventually in the 1930s, newspapers stopped being enamored of these events and these people and started to say, this is harmful because of the economic downturn that Britain is experiencing. Mm. Right. And so the group lost the the immense social power that it had and could no longer continue. So that's the bright young things, and I'm fascinated with them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do you remember a book series called The Lux? Yes. It was like, so that's, that same author wrote a book called, I think it was called Bright Young Things that was about oh. this kind of, I never read it. But I liked the Lux, but yeah, I never read that one. But interesting. I I didn't know about the Bright Young Things until I researched for this. I want to, I might be a little bit obsessed with them now. Like, I think that's fascinating. (laughs) They are. I think there's lots of books about them. Very Rory Gilmore. Um, Very very very. Rory Gilmore. (laughs) Very uh, Daisy Buchanan. Yes. Um, Yes. Very much so. I don't remember the author's name who wrote the Lux series and Bright Young Things book. I should. Oh, you know what? I'm going to Google it really quick. I really want to read that. That sounds interesting. Did you did you read the Lux? I don't think I did. I think I knew about it, but I don't think I. Yeah. Oh, it's Anna Godberson. Nice. Yeah. And I. I think there were, I think it was a series, but I only read the first one. Okay. Um, So yeah, it's um, upper class uh, Manhattan in uh, 1899. Oh, wow. Yeah. A little bit before, but then, but then, yeah, she also wrote um, Bright Young Things, which was in the 1920s. But uh, one of the inspirations for the Lux was the works of Edith Wharton. Uh Uh-huh. and Edith Wharton also, in an interesting way, influenced Downton Abbey. Sure. So Edith Wharton wrote a novel called The Buccaneers, which is about four young, rich American women who go to England to find English aristocratic husbands <laughs> sure. um, in like the 1880s, I believe, is when okay. it's set. Um, and this is based on a real thing, like a real kind of cultural phenomenon that actually happened. Sure. And 
Lady Cora reflects this because she, as we know, was she was a, a young, rich American woman who married Lord Grantham because he didn't have any money, and she did. It's very romantic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the Buccaneers is a fictional account of this kind of cultural phenomenon, but there's a nonfiction book called To Marry an English Lord by Gail McCall and Carol Wallace. So it you know, looks at a few different um, real women who were part of this phenomenon. And Julian Fellows, who is credited as the creator of Downton Abbey and wrote most of the episodes, he um, read this book and was kind of inspired sure. by by that whole story um, when he was writing the character of Cora. Actually, there's also, so High Clear Castle, where Downton Abbey is filmed, and the Carnarvon family who lived in High Clear Castle, um, there's a lot of similarities between um, between High Clear and Downton Abbey. The lady of High Clear was Almina Carnarvon, and she was one of the buccaneers of wow <laughs> of uh edith wharton's um i mean no she wasn't in the, she's not one of the buccaneers but she was one of the <laughs> <laughs> she was one of the american women who came over and sure yeah um so in that first episode of downtown abbey we get lady cora reminding her husband that like I think I think she says like she basically says that like hey you were a gold digger when we got married like, <laughs> right 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 <laughs> but then of course like they eventually you know it, it becomes like a real love marriage yeah um, whatever um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's interesting I I love that connection between the Buccaneers by Edith Wharton and um, and Downton Abbey. It's just like one of my favorite little uh, little trivia yeah. things. <laughs> when I was kind of, I kind of knew about that connection beforehand, but then I started doing a little bit more research into kind of why this cultural phenomenon happened. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's like a lot of factors going on. So one source that I found is a paper in a an academic economics journal, which I don't uh, think that you can access unless you have like a a higher education uh-huh. institution <laughs> account, which I do. Right. Um, <laughs> Dang but it, JSTOR, calm down. <laughs> I know. But they're, oh no, it's not, it's not JSTOR. JSTOR is actually really like pretty open with their stuff. But, um, uh, but there is an article, <laughs> but there is an article that sort of like summarizes that article at which okay. we can link um so the the academic article is by mark p taylor um who's an economist uh, and a professor and so he during quarantine <laughs> like binged downton abbey and then he watched <laughs> uh, the bbc miniseries based on the buccaneers which i think is from like the 90s okay um, so he watched those and he kind of made this same connection too, uh, you know, kind of like trying to think about like why this was such a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, he, uh, cause it like, if you look at records, like um, he, he notes that in the four decades before the outbreak of world war one, 100 daughters of American business magnates married titled members of the British aristocracy. Wow. Yeah. So he says that the trend likely started with the 1874 marriage of Jenny Jerome, who's the daughter of New York financier Leonard Jerome, and she married the son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough, Lord Randolph Churchill, and they eventually had Winston Churchill. Uh, sure. You might have heard of him. Ever yeah. heard of Winston Churchill? Um, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first such marriage to take place. Um, and then two years later in 1876, Consuelo Iznaga, who is the daughter of a, a West Indian sugar plantation owner, 
which, you know, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but who relocated to Newport, Rhode Island. Um, so Consuelo married the heir to the Duke of Manchester, which like Duke is like the highest sure. rank of aristocracy below royalty. So that that's like a big deal. Yeah. Um, so he says in the article, thereby proving that the very highest social rank below royalty was not beyond the scope of the daughter of an American business family. Yes. Um, he also notes that the dowry settlement was 200,000 pounds, which today would be $26 million. Wow. So these are like very rich people. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> Right. Since I do have access to educational institutions, I was able to read the full article. <laughs> <laughs> and I just pulled out a little bit more details about kind of the, the economics of this phenomenon. So Taylor writes that these fictional storylines are based on real world trends that ran through four decades until the outbreak of World War One during which period 100 American business magnates' daughters were wedded to titled members of the British aristocracy, 40 to younger sons of aristocrats, 60 to eldest sons and heirs to titles, and 6 to holders of the highest aristocratic rank of duke. Wow. Or, cal calculated another way, between 1870 and 1914, fully 10% of male aristocratic marriages followed this pattern. So like 10% of yeah. male British aristocrats married American heiresses. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. He goes on to say, given that the British aristocracy was generally regarded as the most exclusive club in the world outside of the British royal family, this is a remarkable phenomenon. And he goes on later in the paper, he like gets really into the details. Um but his hypothesis is that the accelerated decline in agricultural prices in the late 19th century, which reduced the income of aristocratic landed estates at the same time as it reduced the income of the gentry themselves, led to richly dowried American brides being substituted for women from the landed gentry which would be untitled landowners. Yeah. Traditionally, traditionally they would have been the chief um, women marrying into the aristocracy. Sure. Um, so he does get very into the nitty gritty of the economics of this, which I found really fascinating, but we don't really have time to <laughs> get super into it. But basically it was that, you know, uh, and I'll talk more about the decline of the British Empire and the aristocracy in a later part of this series. But basically, it was like uh, the aristocracy is losing money um, and power. Yeah. Um, and uh, kind of on the other half of it, these American businessmen are, you know, kind of they're like the new money of American society. And they're, like, unable to kind of break into, like, the old high society of the United States. Because right. that's, you know, like, they're like, we go back. Our family goes back to the Mayflower, which it's not the flex you think it is. but uh, <laughs> Certainly not, no. But because, like, even in, you know, even, it, even though it had only been, like, 200 years since the Mayflower, it was, like, impossible to kind of break into that high society to you know, find husbands for their daughters. So they went to England instead Yeah, where, you know, these ancient families with crumbling estates needed money yeah. <laughs> and the American, these American businessmen had money to give their daughters as dowries. Um, wow. It's very, it's like a perfect storm really yeah. of all of these factors um, leading to this which I just find fascinating. Yeah. Um, which makes, This is going to be a long episode. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That just reminds me, too, of, like, another reason why the Bright Young Things would have had mock weddings, because it was so much more mm -hmm. of a, like, 
that's a little sure, bit yeah. ridiculous. A lot of those marriages. Yeah. And I mean, like marriages of aristocracy going back for centuries were yeah. always much more about like the financial transaction than yeah. they were about like love <laughs> or right. you know, companionship. But I think that that with this phenomenon, you know, in the 1870s and 80s of um, like literally exchanging your hand in marriage for this money to save your family's, you know, dying estate. Yeah. Like it just makes it even more obviously transactional. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ultimately, like it turned out okay for Cora and, uh, is it Robert? <laughs> Yeah. Um, like it turned out okay for them. Um, but I'm sure that a lot of those marriages were very cold and very, yeah. you know, not fulfilling. Um, and the children of those marriages, you know, maybe not didn't have happy childhoods. So yeah, and they that's who would have then become the bright young things. So yeah, and a great a great many of those connections were often forged through societal parties and and the mm -hmm. social dances where you would get paired with someone and to see like okay we got to get these two together like they have to make right. a match so that this will happen and a lot of that happened through these big social dances that we we see it's my favorite part of historical dramas is to see like the type of dancing that they use in these mm, big scenes sure. those big lavish dances and it made me laugh as I was researching kind of dance styles um, it made me laugh that in the 1800s, a waltz was seen as risque. Oh, yes. It <laughs> a was. waltz was very much like, oh. Because you're touching your partner the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Um, Ooh. <laughs> I, I know. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about types of waltz. Um, that we were seeing, they started to come about in like the 1830s and very much stayed in um, popularity until the the opening of Downton Abbey um, in mm -hmm. the early 1900s. And yeah, so a waltz is characterized as, so a waltz means to roll or revolve in German. <laughs> um, and it's a step, slide step in three-fourth time. And it was that kind of rolling movement specifically, which was shocking because because <laughs> when else might you roll in the hay um oh, it's very suggestive <laughs> pretty dang suggestive the victorians were such a repressed people the, like. truly 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 <laughs> um it's one of my favorite parts of the show is watching maggie smith get more and more okay <laughs> with all of this like as uh -huh. the show goes on but yeah that rolling movement of the waltz was Super shocking at first um, in the 1830s and 1840s, so and it's remained popular. So there was there were a few different types of waltz. There was the galopede, so mm -hmm. it was one of your classic group dances where you're kind of standing apart, like apart from each other, and you advance to each other and then retreat, and then you cross bodies, which I think we've seen in a, in a great many of these these shows. Mm -hmm. And the movement, uh, re that action repeats, and then the couples. This was the real. It's getting, it's getting saucy. The the couples mm -hmm. would then come together and swing down the alley of um, that were created by the other bodies. If that makes sense. So like you're standing on two um, two lines, and then you swing with your partner all together. So that was the gallopede. And we can link some, like, examples of this. Um, yes. There was also the mazooka, or, yeah, the mazooka. Sorry, mazurka. There was also the <laughs> mazurka, which was, it was more reminiscent of the country dances, the group country dances that were seen just before the waltz became popular. And so the mazurka is Polish and um, has a specific type of music called the mazurka that, it, um, that accompanies it. And this is very much like you're clicking heels and stomping on the floor and it's mm. lively and exciting. 
and um, in like where the Gallipede, you all do the same thing. In the Mazurka, there's upwards of 50 different possible moves that you can do while you're dancing mm. together, but they're all like, it's more frivolous and fun. So like, can, so like each couple would kind of choose which ones they wanted to do. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. A little bit similar to what we see later in swing dance, where there's like uh-huh. hundreds of moves that are categorized as swing, and you can pick which ones you like best. So, okay. um, and it it was meant the mazurka was meant to be relatively wild and reminiscent of a fun time, you know, like it was mm-hmm. meant to be fun. Whereas I don't know, you might have fun doing a waltz, but I don't know if it's meant to be like. Mm-hmm super wild um so mazurka is more inspired by kind of that like natural expression as much as there was any natural expression on the dance floor for repressed victorian people yes (laughs) um specifically in terms of the music so you have to dance a mazurka to a mazurka just like how if your champagne isn't from champagne is it really champagne oh sure (laughs) if you you wouldn't also like you would not dance the macarena to any song but macarena i should say right yeah no i would hope not (laughs) let's hope not um, however, we do see that the chicken dance does generalize. So some of those dances oh, have, that's true. <laughs> have staying power. But the hokey pokey, though. It's hmm. true. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was interesting to me as I'm closing this this little dance section that Chopin um, wrote like 57 pieces of music for this dance style alone. So he was real into it. I don't know Good why. Lord. Yeah, he, he was, he was <laughs> he into it. He found his niche, you know. <laughs> he, he went for it. He loved himself the mazurka. Um <laughs> That's I do think, though, that that's how often these kind of marriages and matches began is in these little social dances. Just interesting how that social world worked, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, I think dancing in so many, you know, period pieces, dancing is is usually like a metaphor for something else. Something else. Uh huh. Yep. (laughs) Something else. Um, yeah, because, you know, in in a time period where like sexual expression was, you know, discouraged and yeah. ostracized, like dancing was the only way that you could kind of express any kind of totally. romantic or sexual um, attraction to someone. And so, yeah, that that definitely definitely tracks and it kind of gave you a way without being too vulgar to test if that chemistry would be there sure yeah does this work absolutely yeah Yeah. (laughs) i love that well next time we're gonna talk about some less fun things (laughs) yes we're gonna get more darkly into history next to get really historical um which we love to do we do but yeah yeah that's I yes Downton Abbey. What a ride this show! If you Let's do it before our next episode comes out, feel free and turn it on your television and watch some Downton because yeah. it's interesting. It's all, on, it's all on Netflix. It's all on Amazon Prime. Yeah, you have you have options. Um, you sure do. But yeah, uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, yada yada. Yeah, you know and. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening, friends. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye.